This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's bring in our team because we've got with us, of course, Bloomberg Economics Senior U.S. Economist Yelena Shalichiva and also Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. Yelena, I know you're going through it just as we are. Anything so far that you've been able to see from that statement? I don't see much in terms of... uh, um what uh, is going on uh, with asset purchases. So this is uh, an important question uh, that a lot of people are asking uh, right now is how does the Fed see, how does the Fed see future uh, uh, asset purchases? So will they increase the amount of asset purchases if things go uh, really badly in the fourth quarter or will they, uh, you know, shift the duration and, and just uh, looking at it quickly, I don't really see much uh, uh, further insight on that. The Fed has uh, really, uh, you know, uh, strengthened uh, their framework with respect to interest rates and uh, what to do with interest rates going forward, what they need to see to be able to uh, raise interest rates uh, in the future. Right. Uh, what kind of inflation and uh, unemployment rate? Nothing, mu- no much more clarity in terms of uh, uh, asset purchases going forward. Just want to mention though some of the headlines that we are putting out on the Bloomberg. Some at the Fed saw appropriate to assess the bond buys in future meetings. So that has to do with some of those asset purchases. Fed minutes also showing forward guidance, not unconditional commitment, which is something Jason we know that certainly Fed Chief Jay Powell says often. We're going to lay it out here, folks, but it could change. Yeah, absolutely. And he's been a pretty active voice for change. And what he's said, what the Fed is doing, and maybe what the Congress isn't doing, at least so far, that has certainly been weighing on the equity markets, giving them a little bit of optimism. But yesterday, a lot of pessimism, Dave Wilson. So help us understand the equity reaction, not just to this, but to the underlying economy right now. Well, I mean, you look at the S&P 500, it's near its highs of the day, which it got to in the last uh, half hour or so. Uh, clearly, there hasn't been anything coming out so far uh, from the meeting minutes to really kind of change the picture. And so what you're left with is, you know, sort of a focus on what may happen in terms of uh, economic stimulus rather than what won't happen, sort of this big picture kind of deal that uh, fell by the wayside yesterday. I mean, the airlines in particular benefiting from the idea that that President Trump would be willing to sign a $25 billion payroll support plan. You know, you look at American, Delta, United, uh, all up uh, at least 3% in today's trading. Uh, They've also uh, got some upgrades uh, uh, out of J.P. Morgan, uh, United, JetBlue, and Spirit. So that helps, too. Uh, But really, it's just a broad-based advance we're looking at here. The 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500 all higher at this point. Raw material producers leading the way. Right. Right. 
So most, quote-unquote, on the Fed are concerned about a pullback in fiscal support, Yelena. That is not a shocking uh, statement, especially because we've heard that from the chair of the Fed as recently as yesterday uh, in many ways. But what does that tell you about what the Fed feels like its role is at this point versus the fiscal side, which I know, uh, you know comes down to Congress and you've been watching closely as well? Absolutely. I think that is uh, another very interesting uh, point that uh, uh, was in the minutes. And uh, as you said, Chair Powell yesterday called it tragic, right? Mm. So he used the word tragic uh, twice uh, and in his speech at the NAEP conference. And uh, it's really, uh, you know, at this point, sounds like uh, the Fed has assumed uh, some fiscal support will be available in 2010, and that's what the minutes are saying, but we're not getting uh, more fiscal support, looks like, uh, any time, uh, at least before the election. So the, the best uh, we can probably hope for is uh, that we'll get something in the lame duck session, but most likely not until 2021. So that means the fourth quarter of the year may uh, be quite uh, a weak one, and uh, we will start to see some data deteriorating, uh, right. including payroll. Listen, something that Jason and I have loved to hammer on, right? It's the reminder that the Fed, they can do lending but not spending. And the right. spending has to come from Congress and lawmakers and the president to sign off on all of that. And, and we have they to haven't been doing it of late. No, exactly. All right, guys, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yelena Shalaitjeva, our senior U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics. Check out her work on the Bloomberg. And Dave Wilson, he's going to be back later on with his chart and stock of the day, stocks editor at Bloomberg News. I need to take a breath. Yeah, interesting. I mean, look, the, the minutes part? from the, the Fed, we look at them closely, maybe more closely now because we know how much is changing. But then again, it happened two weeks ago. I know, <laughs> you know? I know. So, but, but remember when we used to not get these minutes for like a longer time, at least now there's it's two weeks. Yeah. And so – Right. And listen, we've heard from a lot of Fed speakers, right? So this is just confirming what we've been yeah, hearing. Yeah, we sort of know where part. they are. And I, I'm glad that Yelena pointed out how strong the language was from Jay Powell just yesterday. Yeah. And maybe that, uh, you know, maybe ultimately that does move Steve Mnuchin, who we know has been a big proponent of the Fed chair it's for a long time. It's amazing in an election year that this hasn't happened yet. I know. I know. It's amazing. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk some politics. <laughs> we love it. We love our next guest. He's our go-to guy, Rick Davis, partner at Stonecourt Capital, former Republican strategist, Bloomberg contributor. Of course, he joins us on the phone from Virginia. It's a big night when we are going to see the two candidates for vice president square off couple of sheets of plexiglass between them. So much drama underneath this, some unexpected drama, Rick. So vice presidential debates, you've seen many of them. Uh, some are notable. Others are the opposite of notable. This one has some weight to it, I think, right? Well, it comes at a very key time in this election, and it was made key because of the last presidential debate a week ago when President Trump really tried to bully his way through the debate and caused a lot of problems for some of his own supporters and undecided voters started moving toward Joe Biden. So this is a critical time when 25 states are already in the voting process. Uh, over a million votes have been cast at this stage in Florida alone, a key state. 
And it's now the weight of the Trump campaign rests on probably its most anonymous uh, advocate, and that's the vice president, uh, Mike Pence. And, and, you know, he's a good debater, but nobody, uh, no vice president, I think, has had the weight of this much pressure on them going into the, going into the debate. So what does he need to do tonight, Rick? You know, first of all, he's going to have to explain the administration's seeming lack of success, one, in protecting his boss, the president and the White House. As the head of the White House COVID task force, you would think he would start at home first and work his way out for the rest of the, the country. But, but that's going to be number one. And, of course, this administration has not liked to address the COVID virus uh, problems associated with health. They don't mind talking about the economy, but the health aspects are going to be the toughest part for Pence to navigate tonight. He was in charge of the response. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough to be in charge when it doesn't go well. And and nothing is a better metaphor for that than the fact that his boss is now quarantined in the residence in the White House uh, with COVID and, and a significant number of other senior White House aides, Senators and others in the administration have now tested positive from the last two weeks where there was limited use of uh, social distancing, limited use of, um, of masks, all those things that the health experts say you should be doing. So it's tricky, we know, for Pence. It's going to be tricky for Kamala Harris as well, right? Because here you have a president that's still dealing with the virus himself, and we all certainly wish him well and a quick recovery. Um, At the same time, she's got to have a lot of criticisms at how he and his administration handled this and how Mike Pence handled it. That's right. And for her, tone is going to be critically important. Uh, Her boss, Joe Biden, has taken a very empathetic approach toward Donald Trump. He hasn't attacked him for his lack of capacity to uh, to challenge to challenge the virus, and and if anything has uh, gone out of his way to be nice to him in the sense that he's pulled down his negative ads. Kamala Harris is a trained fighter. She was a prosecutor in California. She's a senator. She's shown her moxie at congressional hearings, like on Supreme Court. And um, and she showed her teeth during the Democratic debates, even in relation to her responses to Joe Biden. So in order to comport with the Biden campaign's kind of empathetic response to the president's covid diagnosis, she's going to have to dial that back a little bit. And, and some of those things are trained instincts and they're going to be hard. But I think that's the that's the goal for her is to manage her tone in a way that she makes her points successfully, both on Donald Trump and uh, Pence, but that she doesn't look like she's being overly aggressive. So, Rick, I'm sure we'll come back to the debate in a second, but I I do want to take a beat if we can and and sort of, since we haven't gotten a chance to to talk to you since all this happened, sort of get your thoughts on the weekend that was and what a weekend it was (laughs) in terms of the political aspects of this, how it was played by the administration. You've mentioned the Biden campaign's response, but what is ultimately, based on polls that you're seeing and people you're talking to, what's the political fallout of what we saw with the president in the hospital, what he was saying, what his doctors were saying, and all of the things that have come since then? 
Well, it really starts, if I can just dial it back to the last presidential debate, I mean, a shockingly aggressive yeah. uh, Donald Trump went after Joe Biden and literally couldn't even, Joe Biden couldn't even get a word out. Uh, and, and that response started a series of reactions from voters. And we started picking this up in the polling data that was taken the day after and the subsequent time since then. And in a number of surveys that are public, uh, the Wall Street Journal, NBC poll, and CNN all showed significant gains in, a, in, in especially a critical area, which, which are voters who are white males who have been staunch Trump supporters are now becoming Biden supporters. And Biden's margins on those polls had increased during this period of time, uh, almost doubling his national polling numbers. And, and a number of polls we've seen in key battleground states like Arizona have tra- started drifting even further apart, uh, showing Biden widening his leads. So, so the combination of a disastrous debate performance and then almost immediately coming down with COVID uh, has really put the, de- the administration on defense. And, of course, this is administrations that's usually pretty agile and capable yeah. of handling that defense, but is hurting them now at a, at a time when – it's very hard to then get your footing and, and go back on offense. So as a strategist, so does it make you hope that President Trump can do another debate with Biden at this point? Would that make a huge difference? Yeah, he needs change, right? The current mm. deck of cards is not good for him. And so, one, he's got to focus on tonight. Pence has got to clock in a great debate. He's got to connect back with those voters that are peeling off of the Trump campaign, specifically white males, and now, you know, and ha- still have time to address the, the key voter group they need are white suburban women with college educations. I mean, so he's got a, an amazingly difficult task to thread that needle. And then Donald Trump has got to be able to have another shot at changing the public's attitude toward uh, his performance, especially in the last debate. And the best way to do that is to clock in a great performance in the next debate. But that's all going to be determined by his health. Can I ask you, what what was different this time around? Because I do feel like when President Trump is on the campaign trail, this is his mode of being kind of tough guy. And for lack of a better word, forgive me, you know, being kind of a bully out there when he's talking to his constituents and they seem to eat it up. What was different this time around? You know, the contrast, right? So as you described it, Carol, I mean, he's used to having that stage all by himself. And if he wants to talk for an hour and a half, there's nobody there to interrupt him. But when he's on the clock and he's allowed two minutes to respond to a question, and then when, when his opponent, Joe Biden, is responding, he can't give that stage up. His training has been to, to just, you know, completely dominate the message. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't let himself allow anybody else to get a word in edgewise. And so even though he didn't do much debate prep, he said, oh, being president tra- trained me to be a good debater. Well, not really. It trained you to be kind of a advocate for your own policies and very aggressive. And, and it didn't train you how to dial it back and, and be able to parry and thrust with another opponent on the stage. That's still the biggest obstacle for him. And of course, his key debate coach, uh, uh, Governor Chris Christie, is in the hospital with COVID. So the one thing we know is they're not meeting to go through debate strategy for right. the next one. So back to tonight's debate, if we can, Rick, and, and I do you know, wonder 
what sort of, and I read something about this this morning, and, and I'm, I want to get your take on it. What sort of candidate and what sort of vice presidential candidate has Kamala Harris been so far for Joe Biden? Obviously, this is a non-traditional campaign. They're not barnstorming by any stretch. And, and maybe uh, the strategy changed slightly uh, after the president's diagnosis. But having seen a number of pairings over the years, up close and personal, what do you make of this one? Yeah, she uh, she represented a very important pick for him. Uh, he needed to show the American public that this was probably the biggest decision he was going to make prior to the election itself. And, uh, and he needed to unify the Democratic Party going into his convention, which was not a given because his policies are much more centrist than a lot of the rank-and-file activists that come to a convention, in this case virtually, and, and who dominate some of the... Uh, the key players in the Democratic Party. And so I think that he, he really did the best he could by picking someone who uh, was able to satisfy the left, uh, but at the same time was able to, to strengthen his communication with the minority community and, and be competent on top of that, right? He didn't have to give up anything uh, because of uh, Kamala Harris's bio was so strong. So really the best thing she's done for the ticket was was to ultimately say yes, become yeah. a part of the ticket, uh, keep the party together, and allow Joe Biden to stay as a centrist candidate, which, as we saw in the last debate, was just driving Donald Trump crazy. He wanted yeah. to paint him as a liberal, right. and Joe Biden wouldn't have anything to do with it. So I do wonder, at this point, we've all learned that polls can tell us one thing and outcomes can be another. So... How do we how do we be smart, Rick, about reading some of the polls are, that are out there right now? They, it sounds like a really big gap between Trump and Biden, and it does look like Biden is leading in a lot of places. But how 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 do we need to be kind of smarter? We certainly learned back in twenty sixteen that we read them all wrong, or we read well, them, I, but they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, some of them were wrong. Um, some of them, what you yeah. what you try to take from a poll. Uh, is the direction of the numbers. Uh, don't fall in love with the numbers themselves. A poll is a snapshot in time. Um, what is unique about this campaign is how consistent the polling has been for the, the six months prior to the last debate. And, and, and basically, the election hadn't moved, and it was a relatively close election. And even though I'd say the polling showed Biden with a small advantage, it was a small advantage. Now, it was universal. That small advantage was all over the country in every battleground state, uh, which was the advantage of the Biden campaign. But it wasn't big enough to, to think that a uh, win was assured. What has happened since the last debate uh, that nobody could have predicted is that we've finally seen some movement in those numbers after six months of stability. And that's what you look for. You look for what direction are the voters moving in, uh, because that indicates um, you know, whether you want to call it momentum or, or undecideds breaking or people coming off of the candidate. And, and then you can go inside those polls into the crosstabs and say, hey, are these white males in suburban communities, uh, white working women with college degrees? I mean, you can really pinpoint where the vulnerabilities are. And, and what you hope is those movements are headed toward your candidate, not away from them. And if they're headed away, you have to take prescriptive efforts. You have to, you have, to have a communication with those voters quickly in order to keep them at home. Uh, or 
try to take those voters off of the opponent. And so that is what I think is the key thing here is after six months, we've seen very little movement. And all of a sudden, the mm-hmm. twin pillars of a bad debate and getting coronavirus has shaken loose some of the electorate who were for Trump. Mm. They were on his ballot. They were voting for him, and they've changed their mind, and they're now saying to the pollsters, I'm going to go with Biden. Now, anything can change. I think one of the things in the last election is, you know, you had the, you had the FBI reopen an investigation with Hillary Clinton at the very end, and that changed numbers, right. and it was the direction away from her which was caught on Election Day. And so directionals are what you really focus yeah. on, not the numbers themselves. Rick, That's last great. question for you. When you think about the president being off the road, out of the limelight, especially from those big rallies, how much, if you're advising him, do you worry about that? Uh, he, his emotional stability uh, is key going into an election, right? I mean, you want them up. You want them excited about each day. You want them focused on their message and their performance as a candidate, whether it's doing an interview or a rally. And, and, and I would say the, the worst thing you could ever do to Donald Trump is confine him to quarters. I mean, he's a guy who likes to get out. He likes the big crowds. He's willing to take risks with his own health to do it. And now that's bit him. And so I got to believe that the thing that the staff around the president are having to manage right now is his own psyche. Don't let him get down. Don't let him get angry. Don't let him get defensive. Don't make mistakes along the way that you then have to make up for. And, and, and good luck with a guy who's used to not taking advice from anybody. So, I mean, I would say the stability of his own thought process toward the election is key right now for that guy to come out and have a good performance if he does do another debate. Mm. Rick Davis, you you. are quite literally the best. Thank you so much, partner Stonecourt Capital, former Republican strategist and Bloomberg contributor. I am in a whole new frame of mind and excited to watch this debate tonight. You made us a lot smarter, so we really appreciate it. Bloomberg contributor, of course, Rick Davis. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. One of the big stories today, and as I said, it's Veeps and Virus today, is certainly the virus. We have been watching Eli Lilly big time today because that stock is definitely rallying. It's up about 4%. This as the company is asking U.S. drug relators to authorize emergency use of its experimental COVID-19 antibody therapy. They had some data that showed the treatment reduced hospitalization. So let's go right to the source because lucky for us, we've got Dave Ricks. He's Eli Lilly's chairman and CEO, and he joins us on the phone from Indianapolis. Uh, Dave, it is so great to have you here with us. It's a big story. Uh, We're on the virus. Uh, I think everyone's hopeful. Tell us about the significance of this news specifically, because you guys kind of have two paths forward uh, in terms of either uh, a cocktail or doing a monotherapy. So tell us a little bit about the news today and what it means. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, It's an exciting day, especially for all the collaborators and researchers who've been working literally 24-7 for the last seven months to get here. We announced several things today that we've submitted a request for an emergency use authorization. That's the um, vehicle that you can use in the pandemic to get a quick approval um, without the normal full data package, but having proof of safety and efficacy. We're doing that on the, on the monotherapy, the single uh, antibody. And then we also disclosed new data on the combination, which also is shown to be quite effective and safe. And we're saying we're going to submit that over the coming weeks. We want to accumulate a few more patients on it to, to prove the safety. 
We also said today that we, uh, based on decisions made months ago to manufacture at risk, we would expect to have something like a million doses available this fall of the monotherapy, the single one that we're submitting for today. So that's a big number of doses and could help a lot of people. We want that to go to work uh, here in the U.S. and around the world to arrest the worst consequences of the virus. Right. So so let's talk about how that gets out there, because that clearly is a key question. You know, we're all so focused on all the different things that we can throw at this, but ultimately you got to get it to people. How do you do that? What's the mechanism by which this all works, Dave? Right. So in, the, in this emergency situation, we're not going to follow normal business course. What we're doing is partnering with governments and here in the U.S. with the Operation Warp Speed effort um, and the DOD, which is in charge of procurement during the pandemic, and similar mechanisms in, in um, other markets. And the reason we're doing that is we know we don't have enough material to meet 100% of the demand. And what we don't want is the product to either sit idle, uh, be hoarded, or um, go to the wrong patients who don't have the greatest benefit. So we're partnering with governments to ensure a good allocation. And then um, also we want to partner with governments to reduce patient out-of-pocket costs to zero or something very close to zero. Uh, Most of the developed world has already announced those kinds of programs, and so by working with governments, we can ensure that uh, cost is not a barrier. Hey, one thing I'm wondering, Dave, is how much of what happened to President Trump and his getting multiple treatments, um, different types of treatments, had to do with your news today and bringing that monotherapy out sooner rather than later or waiting for the cocktail? Well, for us, uh, this this date was on the calendar long ago. Um, the data locked on some of these studies just yesterday. And we've been working with the uh, career scientific professionals at the FDA you know, kind of hand in glove for the last four or five months to get to this point. Um, we the data matured, and we thought it was appropriate to request a submission at this uh, for for an emergency use authorization at this time. That was in motion well before the news from last week. Of course, um, we're all we've all learned in society more about antibody therapy and their utility, and that's probably a good thing to raise the awareness. Um, so that you know, maybe seems beneficial in the moment, but this this was preordained some time ago in terms of when we'd be pushing forward for the use. Well, and, and in some ways, building on, on what Carol was talking about in terms of what we saw with the president, obviously, that's one patient, and he's a special patient in, in many ways. But I do think people are trying to understand, and maybe you can help us understand, what what's the effective way or what do we know about this virus in terms of what we need to throw at it when? And what do we need to be yeah. taking and thinking about is as individuals, especially since this is, as I understand it at least, sort of a bridge to a vaccine, right? Like, so as, a, as just a normal guy, like, how should I be thinking of a drug like this? Yeah, this is, it's a very important question. We're studying this medicine in three settings. Uh, one is the one we announced today, which is um, patients who are newly diagnosed, the so-called mild to moderate, um, that's their current state, but a, a portion of the patients, and it's hard to predict which ones, but we, we think age and obesity are two contributing factors, a portion of those patients never uh, resolve the virus themselves or have a struggle to do it. And so by giving uh, early, particularly in those high-risk patients who are over 65 and have what's called the body mass index over 35, which is the definition of clinical obesity, that they can benefit by avoiding hospitalization. 
And what the, this medicine does is it knocks down the virus, mm. kind of gives your body a jump start on its own immune response, and so that patients um, don't get into this challenge where the virus is spreading faster than they can conquer it. It's sort of a turbocharger for your own immune system. That's a, an appropriate place, we believe. That's why we've pushed for the emergency use authorization. But we're also studying it earlier in disease in what's called primary prophylaxis, where um, we're actually doing a study in nursing homes, where we know the tragedy in nursing homes in this country of 40% of all deaths due to COVID-19 happen in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And in these, these um, settings where people are close together, all very high risk, the disease spreads quickly and with horrible consequences. So what we're doing is a study where if there's one infection in a home, we swoop in, we actually re retrofitted RVs uh, to be mobile research units, we swoop in, we, we treat everyone with the antibodies, and then we watch, like yeah. a vaccine study, to see if we can knock down the reinfection rate and spreading of infection in a home. And then finally, there's a big study going along with NIH in hospitalized patients. But the general theory here would be earlier better for this kind of medication. You know, Dave, one of the things, and we were kind of kicking this around in our newsroom, um, and certainly with our healthcare team that's been covering um, the virus day in and day out nonstop, you know, I think one of the questions came up, like, why focus on making the low dose if it's the middle dose or the co cocktail that has better results in the trial? Well, I think that was the headline from the first um, study we announced two weeks ago, that the middle dose hit the primary endpoint. We showed all the data today because we wanted to make a point that probably that was just by chance, that the primary endpoint we chose, which was the day 11 average viral load reduction, was not a informed choice when we, when we made it. Mm -hmm. We probably wouldn't choose that endpoint again. turns out most people, including on placebo, resolve the virus by day 11. And here, day 11 actually is something more like day 15 because patients appeared in the study on average four days after symptom onset. So um, that's pretty long, and we know that from CDC guidance, which says if you feel sick, quarantine for 14 days. Most people resolve it. But it's a disease of outliers, and a few people don't uh, clear the virus themselves and, and have persistent symptoms and show up to the hospital. So a better metric for viral uh, load, we think, would be this idea of those who have persistent high viral load, or even using it day three or day seven would be much more meaningful. Okay. What these antibodies really do is knock the virus back quickly. Remember, you just get a single dose of this, and it lasts in your body for about four weeks. That initial dose really boosts the, the early response to the virus and helps those patients who would have had a hard time clearing it uh, avoid being in that category and get on the line of people who are self-clearing. Um, and that shows up in the, in the symptom data we demonstrated today, both uh, for all three doses we studied for monotherapy and for the combination doses, and it shows up in hospitalization, which is really a hard endpoint right. that matters most. So our conclusion is none of these doses are really different on clinical endpoints. There are subtle differences in the viral load assessments, and that the day 11 point is really too late um, mm. to, to ascertain the benefits of this kind of therapy. So I don't want to ignore that because we right. set it up as the primary endpoint, right. but we don't think it's particularly meaningful in terms of moving forward. Low dose means more people can be treated, right? So if we use 700 milligrams and not seven grams, I think the president got eight grams, we can literally treat set 10 times as many people because of the limitations on right. supply. So Dave, before we let you go, only about a minute left here, I, I gotta ask you, 
you know, we're trying to take a long view here. And I do wonder if you go back and, and think about where we were six, seven months ago and we looked ahead, are we where you wanted us to be sort of collectively and individually with, with your company? Are we ahead? Are we behind? What, where would you characterize where we are in terms of fighting this virus? Great question. As Lily, we're right where we wanted to be. Um, I had a conversation in late February with our head of R&D about pursuing this program, and we're good at making monoclonal antibodies, so it fit what we know how to do. But as we looked at the landscape of ways to help with this pandemic, we thought this was the surest shot on goal um, that, that had been proven in other viruses, and that we would have a high probability of finding useful antibodies, scaling them up, and proving that in clinical trials. And here we are having done just that, a million doses ready to go, um, and uh, strong evidence that these, uh, these antibodies work. So we're where we wanted to be. I think as an industry in total, we're probably a little bit ahead of where mm-hmm. we wanted to be. Mm. We found multiple repurposed medicines that are helpful, like uh, dexamethasone, like remdesivir, like our own baricitinib, which has shown benefit in an NIH trial. And we have a number of shots on goal with vaccines coming, even you know, over the coming months. So um, I think as an industry, we're, we're proud of that, that response. Right. And right. it's really a record um, for both developing new right. therapeutics and, vac- the, and vaccines. I think the quickest vaccine in the past was four years. And on average, for us to create a new right. monoclonal drug takes seven to ten years. Yeah, Dave, remarkable. Uh, you are a champ Thank for you. spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Dave Rick, CEO of Eli Lilly, joining us on the phone from Indianapolis on a big newsworthy day. Our thanks to him. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So, Jason, we've heard time and time again from the Fed and Fed Chief Jay Powell about COVID-19's impact on the economy and how the longer the pandemic goes on, the longer we're going to feel that economic impact. So we heard from the Fed again, and we know that they are watching the virus and maybe some stimulus. But you know, we want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the virus, because in today's Business Week economics, understanding our economy means understanding where we are in the virus. Bloomberg News health science and medical technology reporter Michelle Cortez is joining us now, and she's on the phone from Minneapolis. Michelle, it is great to have you here with us. Jason and I, when we were kind of watching the day's news, we're like, we got to check in with her. First of all, Eli Lilly, we talked with the CEO. What do you make of that development? It's great news for for Americans and people across the world that these antibody therapies are coming to the market. It is a logical step that the, what they're making there is these monoclonal antibodies, man-made versions of what your body makes naturally. So biologically, it makes a lot of sense. And now we're getting these study results that actually show that it does reduce the risk of hospitalization. And as we have longer studies with more people and watch them more closely, we'll probably be able to find out whether it actually can head off deaths as well. So I think it's great that we're getting some really potentially game-changing therapies on the, on the horizon here. And so, Michelle, and, and we put this question to, to Dave Ricks over at, at Lilly himself, and obviously he keeps track of what his competitors are doing and his colleagues across the market, but you keep an eye on that with an especially uh, keen eye, and I do wonder what the context is, what the broader context is, especially in light, and Carol asked a really good question of, of Dave Ricks, given what we saw with the president and how public sort of all the different treatments were, where are we holistically in fighting this at this moment in October 2020? 
we are still really early, actually, in fighting it. I would say that these monoclonal antibodies, which we don't yet have, right, they just only asked for approval for them, are is the first thing that's going to be really definitively, um, or that has a shot at being really definitively able to change the way that the outbreak runs mm. through the country and through the world. I mean, of course, anytime you have something that's new, uh, you know, whether it's some kind of a, you know, like a, a car accident or just any treatment. Once doctors have seen it a lot, they get better at knowing how to treat it. So things like proning patients, making sure you put them on a ventilator early or late, giving them a drug like dexamethasone, they've gotten really great at fine-tuning the therapies that we have. And they did add remdesivir, which is, you know, adds a little bit for sure, but it's not, you know, it's, it, remdesivir is not a super big game changer for you know, the entire outbreak. These antibodies, we don't know for sure because we don't have the really big definitive trials, but they have a shot at really making a difference. And, and that's only one thing, right? Right, yeah. right. And I guess what's interesting too, Michelle, is that, you know, these are these are ultimately therapeutics and sort of a bridge, as it were, to a vaccine. And, and Dave Ricks talked about it being, you know, used in a prophylactic sort of way in a setting like a nursing home and, and whatnot. But I do wonder when we think about sort of our own daily behavior, our economic behavior, ultimately at the end of the day, what are you seeing out there from a medical perspective that could actually change the way day to day we live our lives or what we're candidly like able to do for work and otherwise? Yeah, I mean, there's just not a great answer to that because the answer is the same thing that we've had before, which is masks and social distancing. Mm -hmm. Like those are the things that can actually make a difference in terms of your own individual safety and the entire environment. When you think about these monoclonal antibodies, I think it's so interesting. Everyone's talking about it as a bridge to a vaccine and all that sort of thing. These are difficult to make. They're not going to have them huge numbers. And it's not a pill. Like you can't have it in your house in case you're exposed to someone or you think you might have been in a risky situation. They're infused. So you have to be, you know, you have to be getting an infusion in a doctor's office or a hospital or something in a nursing home, you could do it. But it's not like something for you and I to do casually on our own. It's not, you know, some kind of a normal prophylactic, the way that we think about prophylactics that are easily available. Um, masks, masks, though, are masks and social distancing, even vaccines are not going to be, yeah. you know, a, a slam dunk. Well, so, gosh, you do see the big picture, Michelle, which is why we love to talk to you. And so that we kind of make some sense out of the headlines. And you said, you know, this is great news that we're, you know, finally getting to, you know, potentially some game changing therapies when it comes to treatment. But when it comes to getting the world back to normal, is that still something that we have to be really patient for and that it's still more like a well into 2021 story? 100%. If, if we if we get this under control well into 2021, we're in good shape. I, I think this time next year is when we should be having these questions. Like that's wow. the honest answer of, of, of when we're going to know. Is it just because we is it because we don't really quite yet have that treatment, or it's we're really close, but then it's that whole ramp up. Well, you asked though about the the, the general country, mm. right? Yeah. Again, this, this treatment and these, these innovations that they're having, that's really great for the high-risk people, the people who are on the margin, the people who we're really concerned about. The president of the United States is a great example, right? Older, overweight, not terribly physically active, 
definitely was exposed, early infection. Those are the kind of people that you're going to want to make a difference for. But that's not you and me, right? I mean, like, nobody's going to be putting me in a hospital or in a helicopter and taking me to a hospital if I uh, start showing signs of coronavirus. You have to you know, wait and see how the person responds to it before you start using these big guns. So for the average person, um, yeah, next year. Yeah, which is part of the reason why I think a lot of people reacted the way they did to the president, you know, saying and tweeting, you know, don't let it dominate your life because the course of treatment that is available to the president of the United States versus an everyday person, kind of a different game. All right, Michelle Cortez, thank you so much. You deliver as always, we really appreciate it. Covering all things virus at the highest level for Bloomberg News. She joined us on the phone from Minneapolis, Carol. She has a great story about um, the VIP medical care. Yes. About it doing more harm than good. I have to say that story has just stayed with me this whole week about the pressure that was probably on the president's doctors, right, to do something. And that you know, not necessarily creating that mixture of treatments is always the smartest. Reminded thing. me of season one of Succession. Do you remember that when when uh, he goes into that when Logan Roy goes into the hospital and all the kids are there and he's saying things? It's pretty Wait. remarkable. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Let's check in with Rich Weiss, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies for American Century Investments. They're looking after about $190 billion. He joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Rich, we always like to check in with people who are outside of our little bubble here in the tri-state area. What's life like in L.A. right now? Hey, it's all good here, Jason. Thanks. It's 70 and sunny. Um, no fires nearby, no earthquakes. And uh, I guess, thankfully, the coronavirus curve is flattened down here, at least for the time being. So no complaints. In yeah, it's words. interesting how, I mean, it was really a worry spot there um, for a while. And then it was again. And, and now it feels maybe a little better based on some of the colleagues and, and friends that we're talking to out uh, out in Southern California. Right. Apparently, the, you know, the the regulations put in place have tamed it down. And, you know, you know, the yardstick I use is whether you're allowing us in New York again without quarantine. And yeah. California is off the hit list. So we're good. Yeah, that seems like sort of a big deal. I, I heard from a number of uh, folks who, you know, are consider themselves bi-coastal and they were happy to be able to come back to New York again. Yeah, that's a really that's right. good point. It, well, go to yeah, please finish. No, no, no. Please. I finish. was just going to say I, I I go to New York, uh, you know, frequently, occasionally to see my brother who lives out in Long Island, and you know I love my brother, but I don't want to stay with him for fourteen days. So right. I'm glad we're off the list. <laughs> exactly. I hope your brother is no. Listening. That was, but that really was the thing. We had a, a good friend who was uh, drop it from L.A. who was dropping her son off uh, for college on on the East Coast, and she ended up you know having to figure out how to quarantine uh, over here. Yeah. It really does sort of. It, change the equation. So when you think about that in the context of 
investing. I mean, there's a certain amount of like sort of walk around or in the case of LA, probably drive around mm -hmm. uh, economics. And, you know, how does it figure into your view of the investing landscape right now, Rich? Oh, sure. I, there, uh, the way we look at it, there are pretty much three primary drivers of the investment landscape for the near and intermediate future, right? At number one, first and foremost, the path of the or trajectory of the coronavirus. That is the main driver, has been for some time, obviously, and will continue to be until number two, the discovery and, and broad dissemination of a vaccine. That's potentially another driver, or at least the announcement of it. And then thirdly, uh, putting them together, monetary and fiscal policy stimulus. Uh, that clearly in the near term uh, is one of the biggest drivers, as uh, we've seen today, for example. So it's, it's those three items. So, so where are you in terms of where we are in this cycle? And there are several, but they're all connected. Virus, economic, market cycle, political cycle. Uh, I really, you know, it's safe to, 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 you know, kind of pull a thread through all of them. So where are you? Are we on the other side of things, almost on the other side of things, or it's still a little bit fuzzy out there? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd love to give you a direct answer, Carol, but my degree is in finance and econometrics, not epidemiology, unfortunately. Which, so, oh, okay. uh, yeah, so some of it is, is dependent on things outside, uh, the, you know, the, the science of finance. And, uh, but with that said, um, it, it's clear we're recovering here in this third quarter and likely continuing into the fourth quarter from the deep recession in the second quarter, slowly but surely. But the, the path of the recovery, and, and not to bog us down in that endless alphabet soup of recovery scenarios, but we're, we're, we're on the other side of the U, hopefully, or V-shaped, we believe it's more of a U, but hopefully... Um, if things go well, we, we don't have to uh, face a W-shaped recovery. There, yeah. I believe the market was fearing another dip here, maybe not as severe as the first one back in March, but another dip, uh, given the uh, the you know the, the the low probability of a phase four of a fiscal policy stimulus, so um, which could throw us back into negative territory on a quarterly basis. Because you're throwing out letters, and Jason and I love to talk about letters when it comes to the economy, does it matter to you? Because I think Mike McKee, who follows the global economy for us, very, very smart, but just kind of whittled it down and said, when it comes to, there's kind of two different things going on. There's the economic cycle, right? Kind of, I think, right, Jason, he said that was the W potentially. And then we've got kind of a bigger, broader, when we look at the world, and that's the K economy in terms of there are some people who are doing just fine and some people are not. Um, and we know Peter Atwater over at Lehman Mary has talked about this. Does it matter to you as an investor, I'm not talking as a human being, that we have the K economy continue? Because as long as the market and economic activity, generally speaking, bounce back? That's all that matters to the financial markets? No, I, I'd say it's a good point because it matters very much for, for investors in general, we'd say. And the reason being, um, you know, I'm glad social, you say that. That makes, that makes, I'm glad to hear that, but go ahead. <laughs> it definitely matters. You know, if from a financial perspective, much less a, you know, a social or moral mm -hmm. perspective. And, and that's because the, the K-shaped recovery, if you will, this bifurcated recovery affects the, not only consumers in different ways, uh, high income earners versus lower, but also corporations. And and so the evidence of that or how, to, how it's manifested itself, you could see quite 
clearly in the divergence of growth versus value stocks, right, of tech versus some of the more, uh, you know, basic industrial stocks. And uh, worthy or if the K-shaped recovery is to continue, which it is today again, uh, if that's any measure, uh, tech outperforming, growth outperforming, those companies that do well in, a, in this particular pandemic because they're online, because they're part of the new way of doing business. Uh, you know, we are all familiar with what the, the FANG or FAM, however, you, whether you include Microsoft or not, the, the big five or so, they're doing exceptionally well in this particular economy and will continue to for the foreseeable future until we see our way past COVID. Yeah. No, it's it's a really, really interesting point. All right. Rich Weiss, thank you so much. Nice to catch up with you. Stay safe out there in Los Angeles. Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies for American Century Investments. And as we said, he joined us on the phone from L.A. Yeah, really cool. Right? Interesting. I just I think it's things we need to think about, right? I mean, everything is connected, but it's not just about the stock market doing better, but it's really about lifting and getting rid of the inequalities that exist in our society. And, and, you know, I've had this conversation with my daughter about, you know, the wealth gap versus income gap and why that wealth gap is so much more significant longer term. Well, there's also, I think, a certain short-sightedness to it, right? And I Mm -hmm. think this is in part what Rich was alluding to, this idea that if you just focus on that top part of the K, you you may be forgetting that, not you, but one may be forgetting that 70% of the economy is consumer-driven. Right. You know, and, and what are you not leaving out, right? What are you missing? All of those consumers are, you know, the affluent. You know, it's, it's a big country and a, and a big economy. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. 